sharing checking accounts, bank accounts, all the money. You're talking about it. There's no hiding money. There's no mystery as to what your plans are. You're working on your plans together, especially if you're doing a budget together. You're working for the future. You're planning for the future together so you don't grow apart. So you may have more arguments, but you'll have fewer divorces. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Gen Z Money Podcast, where we turn financial peace to your reality. I'm your host, James Bowman, and today I bring on Steve Stewart himself. He is a podcast editor, he's a podcast editor, a financial guru, and just all of these great things. I actually got to meet him at FinCon and get him on the show to talk. And he owns his own business. But really, the reason and the main emphasis of our conversation is not only his financial journey, but his unconventional, um, some may look down upon financial principles that he goes along with. So I'm not going to give too much information about things we go into. I want you guys to actually listen and hear not only his solutions, his takes, but also to hear his reasonings behind them. So he's great at articulating himself. He's such a great guy. I love talking to people who are business owners in the finance space and just all these great things. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode, but let's go ahead and bring in Steve. Before we get into the interview, Let's hear a quick word from today's show sponsors. Steve, welcome to the Gen Z Money Podcast, man. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your expertise. How are you doing today? Oh, I, I appreciate being here. And I never thought I'd be on a Gen Z podcast because I am totally not Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we only had Gen Z on the podcast, it'd be kind of wisdom list i would think i want people oh. all stories to You're come in that direction he has wisdom not age and beauty he's got wisdom <laughs> no, exactly man <laughs> absolutely that's that's what i want because i want to hear all of your money mistakes that way i don't follow in them and all of my listeners also don't follow in them so if we can help at least one person i think it's worth it man mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i like to start with every guest from the absolute beginning which is childhood because i think the way you're raised up around money is going to have an impact on your life as an adult. So how was money talked about and viewed as your how in your household as you grew up? There wasn't much talk about money in my household. It was a very middle of the road, medium income, not poor, not rich family, suburbs of Ohio, you know, suburbs of Toledo, which, you know, is not much to talk about there either. Uh, but if we were to talk about, you know, maybe my first big money experience, it was after I got my first paper out. I think it was like age 10 or 11. Yes, we were working back when we were like 10 or 11, riding our bikes around the neighborhood, throwing papers on 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 uh, the porches and stuff like that and making money. And then I'd take that money and I'd go to the local party store. It was called the party store. It's really more like a local, I'd say 7-Eleven. You know, except they didn't have the hot dogs on the rollers. You know, back then it was just all the stuff was on the shelves, you know, candy store. And then I go get a Mountain Dew 
and maybe some candy. And I go down the street a little bit further and go get a glazed donut because we had a local bakery with excellent glazed donuts is way before Krispy Kreme. And so I learned the value of earning a dollar because my parents were just giving me an allowance. They might've given me something, but I don't remember if it was really anything substantial. But when I started earning money on my own, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old, that really stuck with me going forward into everything else that I do today. You know, I have noticed after having so many guests on the podcast and hearing, I really see such a positive uh, outcome from people who started working at a very early age because mm -hmm. they learn at a very early age the what it takes to earn the dollar and the appreciation for it. And so starting at the age of 10 with your first job and being able to spend that money on things that brought you joy at the time. I'm sure that that has cascaded into as you grew up and you started earning more, you still kept that same appreciation for the dollar. Yeah. And it was definitely a cash basis lifestyle back then. Cause that's all you had was cash. I mean, we didn't have credit cards and debit cards and I would be too young to have one anyway at age 10, 12, 14. So it was always, you know, your spending could only go as far as the money that you had in your hand. That was never a thing in my life that I knew of back then. I'm sure my parents had some, but it didn't seem like that was ever an issue. It was definitely a, here's what you've got. This is all you can spend. So that if I didn't have enough, I learned the lesson, stop. <laughs> Simply, that's it. Stop. You're done. You can't do it. So you got to go back to work and, and get some more. You know, that's, wow, that's amazing because we don't have that anymore. You know, instead of running out of money and stopping, now we just go into the negative. Now you owe money to mm -hmm. people, whether it's with a credit card or overdrafting bank accounts, or there is an easier way to obtain money when you have none, which is yeah. to borrow it. So, okay. So at 10, you start working, you're already learning the value of a dollar. Where does that lead to when you start entering those adult years of 18, 19, 20 college time, things like that? Yeah, I don't think I learned the lesson well enough because <laughs> I was, you know, we got out of college, I got out of college, excuse me, graduated high school, high school, and moved in with my best friend. And we got an apartment. He was an artist, so he was always doing stuff in, in the apartment. I rented a room. And this was a, he, he liked the, I want to say the nicer things in life, not saying he had luxury, but he wanted something that wasn't, it, it wasn't, the budget wasn't a concern to him as much he, he wanted this thing over here and this is what and so i went along with it and i never counted the cost before i moved in with him and after about a year that's when i realized that my finances were suffering because i did have credit card debt not a lot of credit card debt but if you're rolling balances that's more than zero and more than zero is debt and i didn't like that so that put a strain on a relationship because at some point i'm like dude i just can't do this anymore i'm gonna have to move out and I did move back in with my parents for a little while and then got myself back on track. Um, this was probably around age 19 or 20. Yeah. Okay. So you weren't too far outside the coop to where it would be a drastic pride hit to just move back in with your parents. You kind of went out, experienced it. You're like, okay, I did this wrong. Let me restart. Does that sound yeah. right? And I was fortunate to have a pretty close relationship with my parents. So it wasn't it. a problem. Plus, I had two younger brothers who were still living there, so it wasn't a big deal. You <laughs> <laughs> say, like, hey, man, scoot over the bed. We're bringing another one in. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, they didn't turn my uh, they didn't turn my old bedroom into a gymnasium or anything. So I, it was it wasn't that hard to move back in after about a year. I love it. So you said and 
I want to make sure was this in is this in hindsight you're saying this or was this at the time of 19 where you said that I have debt. I have more than zero dollars on my credit card, which is I'm in debt. That is bad. That is a bad thing because and the reason yeah. I ask this is because I know Gen Z my age, it's very, very easy to say, hey, look, I have $200 on my credit card that hasn't paid off, but Lucy has $2,000. So you should be talking to her instead of talking to me when I'm the person to say, no, both of you guys are in the wrong. She's just worse off than you. So did you realize this at age 19? Like, okay, having any debt rolling like that in the current interest is bad. Or is that something you're looking back in hindsight through? Well, I knew it was bad. I just didn't think it was, you know, horrible. I knew it wasn't, e I wanted to pay it off because I saw the interest number on the statements. I saw I was paying an interest and I knew that that wasn't benefiting me at all because the stuff I was buying was mostly, mostly for necessities. I'm sure I could have cut back on other things. Uh, you can see my room here. I've got walls and walls of these things, vinyl records. I used to work in the music industry and uh, record stores and stuff like that. And I was buying records because I was a DJ on the side as well. So money was being spent on things that maybe weren't necessities and it should have cut back there. But instead, then there was this, this rolling credit card debt that I was like, okay, there's, I'm heading in the wrong direction. Okay. Just, gotcha. I just need to make a change. And that's where I made the change. Fortunately, my best friend understood. He, he was still my best friend till the day he died. So everything was still good. That's awesome. So you got you didn't have to tarnish the relationship by taking a step back and okay. So you're at the age of 19. You kind of realize that this credit card debt isn't something that is it's not a good thing. So where did you start in actually laying out a plan? Did you start with education? Did you start with just budgeting? Where did that where did that begin? I think I just kind of meandered my way through it all. I never really learned the hard lessons till my second marriage, which wasn't till age 33 and somewhere around 2003, 2004 is when I was like, okay, this is where, uh, you know, I thought we were doing good with money and I was looking at back at everything we had. I mean, I had started a 401k back when I was 21, uh, back when 401ks were still pretty new to the industry. I was like, okay, well, cool. I got this going on. We had a manageable house payment. We had a manageable car payment, stuff like that. But it wasn't until 2000, 2003 that I realized, okay, we're average, but we should be doing a lot better than that. So it was many years of just, just being average with money, you know, saving here, spending there, not going into too much debt, but not all, also not getting out of debt. It was probably two more decades. It was, you know, I, well, about 14 years or so, we'll just say, I don't remember the actual dates, but we're saying about age 33 is where I finally came out of my my zone of uh, denial that, oh, yeah, we're, we're fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, OK, so basically your mid 30s, you know, you weren't absolutely reckless, right? You didn't have right. million dollars in credit card debt or, you know, these absolute things you had your retirement started, which I think is a pretty good thing. And, you know, you weren't just completely down the rails, hundreds of thousand dollars in debt over simple liability things. So that's a great thing for the listeners to think like, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 20s or even in your late teens, 18, 19, if you're starting now, you have a 10 year to 15 year 
gap from where Steve started and Steve Mm -hmm. isn't doing so bad for himself. Right. Yeah. So, okay. You get to age 33, you wake up one day and you're like, okay, I'm not doing terrible. I'm doing average, but I can do so much better. My potential is so much higher. Where, what happened then? What, what did you do? Yeah, I was, I had just started a, a job that uh, involved some travel. I was working as an auditor for a company uh, that had locations all around where I live. I live right now. I live in St. Louis. I was living in Illinois. So Midwest and I was driving a lot and I was just trying to play stuff on the radio, looking for something to keep my mind busy. Cause back then we didn't have CD players and we certainly weren't Bluetoothing our iPhones to our cars back then. So it was about 2003. I bumped into Dave Ramsey on the radio and he kind of caught my attention. Cause here he is yelling at his listeners. I'm like, this guy's kind of mean, but then he was saying things that I thought, well, that's, you know, kind of what I heard. Uh, throughout my life. Yeah. But then he says, you know, cut up your credit cards. Well, you can't do that. He says, pay off the house early. So you don't have a mortgage. Oh, come on. You need the mortgage interest deduction. Everybody knows that. Right. So I was challenging everything he said, but then I started looking into it myself and I was like, you know what? The guy has a point. He has a point. And then it was also, uh, some of the, the lessons were tied into biblical scripture and I'm a Christian. So I was looking in the Bible. I was like, oh, it does say that there. How did I not see that years ago? So that's when me and my wife decided, that's it. We've got to get out of this debt. And and it was actually also, um, well, 2003 is when we started the journey. The pivot, the real pivot, though, was when I got angry in 2006. (laughs) You want that story, don't you? (laughs) Absolutely. What happened? Because I'm thinking 2006, that was before the housing crash. So it could have been that. What, what, What happened there? Right. So 2003, I'm like, hey, we're doing pretty good, but we can do better. We're average, but we should be doing better. Well, 2006, uh, my wife wanted to get a new Jeep, a, a different Jeep, and we didn't have the cash to pay for it. She had the trade-in. It was a good value trade-in or whatever, but then we didn't have the, pay, the cash to pay for the balance. And that's when I was like, wait a minute, hold on. You know, we're saving more money than we ever did before. We're not spending more than we make. We're, we're doing good. Why don't we have this money for a car? We knew to save for it. We just never did. And that's when I got mad. I was like, that's it. So for the next year, I was working extra jobs as a DJ, took every penny from there and everything we could here in the household. And we paid that off in 13 months. So it was almost a year after we bought the thing, but it was early 2017. I'm sorry, early 2007. Holy moly. 2007 was when we paid that Jeep off and have not had any consumer debt since then. That's amazing. So... Well, let, let's start with the Dave Ramsey thing, right? Because mm-hmm. for some reason, I don't know why, but everybody thinks Dave Ramsey's just the devil. I mean, mm-hmm. he's just a he's just a mean white man who doesn't want you to have nice things. And so <laughs> I think he is, I, I've said this many times on the podcast, I'll say it again. I think Dave Ramsey has made more millionaires than any other content creator out there. Mm-hmm. Frank Cardone, everybody. I think his plan is... bulletproof. I mean, it'd be very, very hard to mess it up. So let's clear it out right there. Mm -hmm. But I also know that people, when they decide to go on his plan, they kind of, they have to make adjustments to it in order to make it work for their lifestyle. And so it sounds like you already, by buying the Jeep, made adjustments to the plan to fit your lifestyle. So my question is, how closely did you decide to follow Dave Ramsey's plan on getting out of debt and staying out of debt? When we first started following his plans or, or following his guidance, we'll say, we didn't really follow the baby steps. 
I, uh, it was 2003, 2004. And I, I cut up all the credit cards, closed them all except for one. And I kept the other one. I didn't use it though. I put it aside, never used it. And it was about six months later. I was like, you know what? I don't need this thing. And that's when I was finally convicted. I was like, that's it. I, I can do this. We don't need this credit card. So I cut it up and I stopped using it. And uh, so that would have been, yeah, my last credit card was 2007. Yeah, so it was right around that same time, actually. Uh, it's funny how long those things stay on your credit report. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was 2007, cut it up and hadn't had any consumer debt, any consumer debt products. Uh, is is just because I got angry that one day. I was like, we should be doing better. And that's when I I, I kind of, you know how they say, uh, you know, you can preach, preach absolution, but following is harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I listened to the message and then I started following and it's like absolution. I can do this. And we certainly could. Gotcha. So you guys buy this Jeep. You're like, okay, this thing's got to go. I am not about to sit around with a car payment for the next six years and be average because that's what mm-hmm. average people do. So you guys pay it off in 13 months. And you said before that you didn't have any consumer credit or after the Jeep, you have had no consumer credit. Did you still have a mortgage? Yes, we did have the mortgage. Okay. So basically that was the only debt you guys decided to have that going forward from there. That's right. That's right. Because we had just bought the house in the year 2000. So to pay that off in seven years was a little bit out of what we could do at the time. Gotcha. So you guys have no consumer debt besides the mortgage. What was your mentality behind the mortgage? Were you Dave Ramsey? Let's pay it off at a pretty brisk speed. Did it not really bother you? What was your philosophy behind that? I was, my wife wasn't necessarily. So when you average the two together, we paid extra, but we didn't pay it off as aggressively as I had wanted to. But you got to remember, I'm only half of this relationship. So we made accommodations to do other things, which in hindsight, you know, of course, it's good to be good for you to go on vacation and do things together. Of course, it's going to be good to buy your daughter things. It's going to be good to do these. You know, we replaced the windows. I wanted to pay off the house two years earlier. Instead, we replaced all the windows in the house. So there were concessions made on my end. But in, you know, in hindsight, we were working on this together. So we knew where where each other it wasn't a surprise somebody came home with a brand new card anything like that saying hey look look what i got (laughs) it sounds like you had to compromise right you wanted Mm -hmm. to be a hundred percent and she wanted to you know take it a little bit slower so you met in the middle somewhere i think that that's that's that i i'm pretty sure that is the best choice to make is where one person doesn't get their way a hundred percent and one person doesn't get their way a hundred percent you come together and you both get something positive so Mm -hmm. I, i like that I like that. I have so, a saying. Two, the, the, I always say that a wife and a husband should share a budget. And it might cause more arguments, but it delays or removes the possibility of divorce. Break that down. Because I know a lot when, of people are like, uh-uh, my wife yeah. don't need the budget or my husband don't need to see the budget. Yeah. I want to control it. Break that when down. you're sharing checking accounts, bank accounts, all the money, you're talking about it. There's no hiding money. There's no mystery as to what your plans are. You're working on your plans together, especially if you're doing a budget together. You're working for the future. You're planning for the future together so you don't grow apart. So you may have more arguments, but you'll have fewer divorces. Yeah, I'll take an argument over divorce any day. That sounds Mm -hmm. like a pretty good trade-off. Because you're fighting together. You're fighting together, and you're not fighting apart. 
Now we'll be totally transparent. My wife and I are not completely combined. It just doesn't work for us. We have combined accounts where all of our bills come out of one account that we have combined. We have a combined retirement. We have we have combined family accounts, but we also have our own spending accounts where money can come in and out. And so we don't follow the 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 Dave Ramsey idea 100%, but we have found a compromise that has worked up to this point in our six-year relationship. You know, I have to disagree with that. Well, I don't know the extent of what you're talking about, but my wife and I, we have separate spending categories in our budget. We have Steve's blow money and her blow money account. So if we wanted to just spend a hundred bucks this month on whatever we want, there's no questions asked. There's no questions asked. So I don't know what to extent you're talking about, but it, it is part of, you know, we'll, we'll say Dave Ramsey's plan, but there needs to be that in everybody's plan, no matter who says it. There needs to be some, let me just do something. We already know what the parameters are. We, we've put a dollar limit on what it would be. As long as I stay within that, and it's not some kind of thing that harms me or you, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever, you know, cigarette, <laughs> you know, then what does it matter? So that that doesn't fall without the you know outside of the plan that I can tell. And when yeah. I was coaching people, I was I was encouraging them to have their own little freedom spending account. Yeah, I think I just wanted to put that out there because I think some people can be very extreme and they can take things quite literally. So when Dave Ramsey says that you need to know every single penny that gets spent, I think that's pretty extreme. Like if I go out and buy lunch with my spending money, my wife, I, my wife doesn't even know I'm buying lunch. She knows there was money allocated for me and that's what I spend it on. And so I don't want people to go to the extremes to say that every single penny needs to be known on each side, because I think that that would cause much more arguments. And yeah, so I think I, I just want to clarify because I think people mm -hmm. take things quite literally and it but you know be. what the tools we have, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I got to jump in here because the tools that we have available, you actually can track every single penny because most of us are spending money through debit, through bank drafts, bill pay, whatever. There's there's almost always a trail unless you're taking cash out of an ATM. But even that's measurable because you know it was cash. So then if you're dedicating the cash towards a, a purpose or something, it's totally trackable. Even if it's just, hey, I spent this money on on a coffee today or I went to McDonald's or whatever. You know, it, it doesn't matter what that penny was spent on. You can track it, but you know that it was from, you know, James's blow category. It was already gotta, planned out. Yeah, I got to change that. Blow is just bad. <laughs> Freedom Whoa, spending. Oh yeah, account. you are trying to get some people in trouble. <laughs> Woo, James don't have no blow category. No, guys. no. <laughs> James has a luxury category. <laughs> yes, luxury spending category. There you go. All right, Steve. So, okay, we've gone through your story and now I want to go into some uh, another conversation, which is some things that you've stated that I may or may not agree with. But I want to I want to walk through your philosophy, especially with this first one. Living in America without a credit score. So we both know that that comes with some pros and cons. So can you break down your philosophy behind living in America without a credit score. Whenever this topic comes up, people think I'm trying to get them to a point where they, they think that this is the way to go. I'm saying if you're doing the things that I've done, you'll get there, but it's not the, the destination that you're going for here. 
the reasons why you would end up not having a credit score is what I'm talking about here. So when we're talking about not having a credit score, you're talking about FICO, TransUnion, uh, Equifax, Experian, those places that create these three-digit numbers that measure you against other people. It's all based on debt and debt products. If you look at all the components for a debt, I'm sorry, a credit score, it's all about debt. You're talking about your credit history, your level of credit. Uh, you're talking about all these things that have to do with debt and debt products. Well, I, I like not dealing with debt. I like having no debt. And if I have no debt and no debt products, there's nothing for FICO to measure. So I would then have no credit score. Now, the question is, Steve, why do you want to have no credit score? I, I don't care if I have a credit score or not. Because the problem is, I have never used my credit score. James, you have never used your credit score. You've never used it. You know who has? Uh, you got to break that down. Yeah, because I, I think when you say that, I'm pretty sure there have been times where I've used it. But break that down. What do you mean? The only time you've used it is when you talk to somebody else about it. Mm. You've never used it. The bank has used it. The bank uses it to see if you have any kind of a problem paying back loans. Or maybe they're qualifying you for something else like that. You know, they do a credit check or something like that. Well, if you don't have a credit score, there's no negative marks on your credit. So you're pretty much as credit worthy as anybody else, as long as you're you know, over the age of 18. <laughs> so when I say you, you know, you want to go, go for having a no credit score, it's really just don't deal with debt. It's, it's easy. It's easier to think to live a cash, uh, cash based lifestyle, except for a mortgage. Except for a mortgage. And I'm going to, you know, obviously if somebody takes out a mortgage, boom, you've got a credit score, nothing you can do about that. But you've never used your credit score, only the banks have. So why do we need a credit score? So, okay, well, first, first off, I'm going to answer that question, but I want to, mm -hmm. so I, I'm 100% on the same page with you. Because I think what you're trying to say is like, there's never a reason to go into debt to try and build credit. Like you're, you should never be like, I need to raise my credit score. So I need to go find more debt. I'm hundred percent against that. I think it's completely counterproductive. It's kind of along the same thinking of, I need to spend more money to pay less taxes. It's completely counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, you might spend a dollar and save 50% uh, 25 cents on taxes, but you still lost 75 cents if you were not going to spend the money anyways. So it goes back to debt. If you were not going to get that loan anyways, for example, a mortgage, then don't just go out and get a mortgage to try and build credit. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm completely on the same page there. Now, your question was, why do you need a credit score? Why do I use it? Well, you or anyone in general, what, what is it used for? I, the, the broadest definition I can give for a reason why a why a credit score is used or why it's important is to save money. And it's mainly for things like mortgages. The higher your credit score, the cheaper your mortgage is over time. Now, of course, if you're going to be paying it off super duper soon, the benefits will soon be less than the cost. But essentially, that's what I think of credit as is saving money. And also for things like I know utility companies sometimes run your credit to see if you need mm -hmm. a deposit. So you can save that money, not putting in a deposit and do something like invest it in order to build more money. But 
I agree that it is not a necessity. And I think that that's the point you're trying to get is it's completely acceptable to live without a credit score. It's not a necessity. Is that right? Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Because a $500 deposit for utility isn't going to keep you from, you know, being credit worthy for a mortgage in the future. You know, if, if your utility company, if they need a deposit, okay, so, so be it. You're going to get it back eventually someday anyway, if you're paying attention to what you're doing. Uh, you know, to buy a car. Okay, so I have a 21-year-old daughter. So I can relate here a little bit because I've got a 21-year-old daughter who has been, we haven't, we've, we've talked about money in the household. Yes, we haven't sat down with her and until she was maybe 17 and, and that she was actually asking questions about a budget. So she was seeing things that we were doing, just observing and learning from that. So she's 21 this past January. She'd been saving up her money to buy a different vehicle at some point. We thought it wouldn't be maybe until later this year. So it's February and she finds this car online that's for sale. She wants it. She asks me, dad, can we go take a look at it? And she shows me what the car is. You know what kind of car she was looking for? What's that? It was a red 2011 Chevy Camaro. And I'm thinking, no way is a 21-year-old girl going to buy this car. I got to find something wrong with it. There's got to be something wrong with it. So, you know, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to be a good dad. I'm trying to be understanding, but no way is a 21-year-old daughter going to buy this car. So we go to the dealership. We test drive it. We take it around. They give us the inspection. All this stuff. I'm looking for. You know, we're, I'm like here. Try this. Back it up. Do this. See what's wrong here. Everything sounds right. Okay, cool. Do you have the money for this? Yes, she had the money in cash to pay cash for it. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, the only reason, the only legitimate reason I have against the purchase of this car is because I wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the car. It was, a, it was a Chevy Camaro. Come on. So I, there was no way I could stop her. She had to buy the car. She had, and she, she has loved it ever since she bought the car with cash, no car payments. She has been watching what we've been doing since she was born. She's been asking some questions. She doesn't totally agree with the no credit card thing. Fine. But she knows the value of saving money, paying cash for a car so she never has a car payment again. She's paid for her car repairs. She's paying us for her car insurance. And, and yes, she still lives with us because she's still going to college. But she's earning all this money in a way by behaving and doing things right to where we don't have to hold her on a leash to keep her doing things right. She's doing it on her own. Yeah, Steve, what I don't want you to do, which I'm not saying, I'm not accusing you of doing it, but it seems like, and I, I think listeners are going to listen to this and try to downplay what she did by saying, oh, well, she still lives with her parents, blah, blah, blah. So of mm -hmm. course she can save for a car. Of course she, I do not want to downplay it at all because that is something that most people will not do. To add on to that, my little brother, he's 16. Me and him made a deal to where I told him, look, if you buy your car in cash, I'll match whatever amount you save up, up to X amount. And he ended up like saving up the money super duper quick from working a lot. Awesome. He came up here and he's like, hey, I'm ready to go look for a car. I'm like, what do you mean you're ready to look for a car? And we went <laughs> out and we found a car from him. We bought it cash. I matched what he did. And that was his first car purchase, all cash. That's awesome. And it's it's so great because it just helps me realize like 
This is not something that just cannot be done. He could have continued saving and bought it on his own, but I want to help him get a few steps ahead. And there's nothing wrong with that. The same way you're willing to help your daughter by putting her on your insurance so it'll be a little bit cheaper, letting her live with you and just contribute to the household. So I, do, I don't want to downplay it. I don't want people to think, oh, she's so lucky. No, what you should be striving to do is get into a position where you can also bless the people you love the same way you have for your daughter and I have for my brother. So, and you gave him some money for that car. I didn't help her one bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, he got wow. Lucky. That's great, man. He that's got fantastic. Lucky. He's, he's lucky. He's a great kid, man. He's he's got a bright future. So, and, and you like to reward people who are doing good things. Absolutely, and yeah. it's not it's not even just my brother. Like it's just anybody. If I see you on the right track and you're making decisions that I agree with, I'm gonna do my best to encourage you to continue to make those decisions. So, and that was our deal. You save up the money and buy it cash, no financing, none of that. And he knocked it out of the park. And so as long as your daughter is following your guidelines to where you feel comfortable with her doing these things, you know, obviously she's not a dangerous person because I wouldn't let my kid get a Camaro that. <laughs> but that's just me personally. I don't know anything. I know 20 year olds are sometimes crazy. <laughs> okay, so so we're 100 percent on the same page that. Having a credit score is not mandatory. I want to touch on something, though, that is very important when we're discussing this, because a lot of people will say, OK, well, if a credit score doesn't matter, then my credit doesn't matter. And that's not true. They all, there's a saying that bad credit is worse than no credit. Yes. Yes. So can you expound on why that's the case and any tips for people who want to decide, okay, I want to get rid of my credit score altogether and try and live life that way. Well, again, the goal is not to get rid of the credit score. The goal is to do smart things to where you don't need to worry about what a credit score is or isn't. Uh, so there's, there's bad credit, there's good credit, and there's perfect credit. There's three things. At least that's the way I categorize it. Good credit is what most people have, and they're striving to have this, this perfect credit score, the highest you can get. But it's, it's almost unachievable because it changes almost daily you know you might hit it or whatever this number that that's out there but i think the perfect credit score is zero because then you're saying i'm able to pay for everything that we have i've got savings to take care of any kind of emergencies repairs maintenance future purchases that we want to make that's the perfect score now bad credit though everybody no matter whether you want to try and live a cash lifestyle like i did or you want to you know have a fantastic credit score you don't want to have bad credit and the reason for that is it's showing somewhere on your report that you haven't paid a bill you missed a payment it got paid late all these things that's really what the banks are looking for that's really what when somebody's running your credit that's what they're looking for they're looking for a history to say this person needs a little extra uh, looking into to make sure that they're going to pay this this whatever you're, you're you're signing up with them for. So yeah, don't don't go. The okay. So the only way to have a credit score is to have debt that you pay on a regular basis, or not pay something. And that not pay something isn't anything that any of us are recommending you do. Obviously, pay your debts and your bills on time. If you pay your debts and your bills on time, eventually you're going to get to the point where you don't need the debt. And then the credit score will go away because you're not using credit cards. You're not borrowing money for cars. Uh, I know it's hard to buy a house with cash. We're looking at moving in the next couple of years. Guess what? We're going to have a mortgage again. So we're, we're preparing for that. 
Yeah. Especially with this latest market, there's no way I'm going to get by without having another mortgage. Yeah. And so I also want to talk about a few things that are actually I'm really intrigued with and I'm really happy to see coming, which is actually building credit without borrowing money. And there's very few ways to do this, mm -hmm. but things like I know that um, Experian has this program to where they can look at your bank account and they can see uh, your utility payments. If you're making, mm -hmm. if you're paying your utilities, they can actually count that towards your credit. There are some landlords using software that will automatically report your rent, the, the rent you're paying every single month to live in your place to the credit bureau. And so these are actually new ways to have a credit score without ever even borrowing any money and just using your daily expenses to do that. And I think that is a great introduction to this whole credit market. But that poses the question to you, Steve, that I have, would you rather someone, if you're coaching them or just giving them general advice, would you rather them have good credit built with these methods of utilities, rent, stuff like that, or just no credit at all? Oh, I'm totally for it. I wouldn't say I'm for it. I'm just not against it at all. If that became the norm, I wouldn't have anything to complain about because <laughs> it's, you know, if you're paying your rent, if you're paying your electric bills, if you're paying all this stuff that isn't debt and it's getting reported, great. The whole purpose of a credit score is not a three-digit number. It's to show that you have a good history of paying your debts and your bills on time. You know, your electric bill. It doesn't go on your credit report unless you have this extra, the Experian Boost or whatever the other services are. It doesn't go on your credit report unless you don't pay the bill. And of course, we're not recommending you don't pay the bill so it's on your credit report. We're saying it's not there, so it's not benefiting you. So what does it matter if I want to pay my debts or to pay my bills on time? That's that's the focus. That's the goal is just to pay your stuff like you're supposed to. So if that were to become the norm where it is considered part of your credit score, great as long as we're all evaluated the same way. So then credit card payments have to be evaluated the same way as utility payments. Uh, maybe rent and mortgage has a little more higher importance. That's great. Uh, but there's, you know, for a person like me, there's no credit utilization because we don't have a credit line to get measured in the FICO score. So how do you, how do you, how do you evaluate people the same way? You can't. So they've got to come up with some way of, of doing that or accommodating for people like me who have, I'm completely credit worthy. I just have to prove it in a way that doesn't include a FICO score. I mean, yeah. if I go to a, a mortgage company and like, we're, like I said, we're going to buy a house. I'm going to have to go to a mortgage company and say, look, we want to borrow X amount of money to buy this house. And they're going to pull up my credit and they're going to say, do you exist? <laughs> like I'm here. Uh, I just don't have a credit score because I don't borrow money. So now we have to go through one of two ways to prove my credit worthiness. Well, three ways. One is they do it themselves. They're not going to just look at my bank account, whatever. Uh, or they go through something like I maybe I set up Experian Boost or something like that or eCredible, which is one of my favorites. Third-party verification service shows that I paid whatever I say that you know I have them look into, which is you know our cell phone bill, our cable bill, um, you know the utilities, city stuff that shows a history of paying my bills on time and the fourth the third way is is uh it's a really old-fashioned way it still exists though it's called manual underwriting 
and that's where the banks do a, a manual verification a verification check. It's just it's more expensive because it's more time consuming for them to do all that themselves. So I understand why banks want to use something as simple and inexpensive and easy as a credit score. But then when something like me comes in, an anomaly in the system, you know, I'm breaking the matrix. <laughs> you know, how are they going to fit me in their mold? So either they lose my business, which they don't want to do, or they follow one of the other two ways, which is manual underwriting or these third-party verification systems or Experian Boost and stuff like that. You know, as you're talking about this, it's kind of making me realize how truly flawed the system is. Mm -hmm. Because if you do pay all of your stuff on time and you don't take the extra step, then nobody will ever know that you pay your bills on time. But if you don't pay your bills on time, it automatically tells everybody in the world that I can't pay my bills. And it's like, wow. So it's like, no matter how much positive you do, if it's not reported properly, it doesn't matter. But if you do any negative at all, it is going to show up. Hmm. That's got me thinking now. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like that. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for 20 years. Yeah. It's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> credit companies. Okay. All right. So let's move on, Steve. Let's talk about you sure Ooh. you want to move on? You want to stay here in this wonderful emotional state. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so bad. And then, but it's also got me thinking, this is why so many people have bad credit. It's because they are doing all the positive things. Their rent is paid on time. Their utilities are paid on time, but their medical debt isn't paid for, or their mm -hmm. they might've fallen back in their student loans. And so if they did have the positive things reflecting, maybe we would see an increase in the average credit score. Now, if somebody's just not paying rent, not paying utilities, not paying anything, then they're still going to be down in the doghouse. But those who are making an effort to do the right thing would see some more progress. So, yeah, and I, I do agree. I mean, there's people who out there who, who something happens and they're not ready for a big medical bill. Some of these medical bills are huge. I mean, wow, you're, you're, you're stuck. And so when I'm talking about, and we're talking here about getting to the point where you're living cash lifestyle and you got a zero credit score. I mean, that's, that's pie in the sky for somebody who just had some serious medical bills that came in that maybe they had some savings, but it wiped them out and they still have more, more bills to pay. So you have to go back to step one and just get back to, you know, the core of what you're doing with your money, which is pay your bills on time. And when you have debts, try to work them out with the lender, try to get on a payment schedule that works for you. And of course, do what you can to make up the, the difference, work extra if you can, uh, all the things that, Dave Ramsey says, you know, sell your car, all this stuff, you know, <laughs> whatever you can do to get back to that square so that you're now able to make your payments and get all of this, this old debt, bad debt stuff off your record, moving towards that, I'm going to call it that cash lifestyle again. Yeah. And I think recently there has been legislation to pass, which is helping medical debt being removed from uh, credit reports, which is a step forward because like you said, man, there's some things you can't control. You cannot control a cancer diagnosis or a, a, an emergency ambulance ride yeah. or whatever the case is. And so there are there is legislation being passed to drop that off or at least make it way less in credit reporting. But yeah, that's what I've heard too, is it's less of a factor on your score when it's on your report. Because you got to remember, credit scores and credit reports are two separate things. Although the credit report 
is the basis of a credit score. And a credit report is the basis of somebody saying you can be worthy of a loan. But most people are looking at that three-digit number because it's easy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you want your credit report to be clean. And it has a bunch, if it has a bunch of stuff on there, great, fine. If it has uh, you know, a high credit number, great, fine. But it needs to be clean, no bad debts. Yeah, straight down to the point. I love it. So the next topic, Steve, is you allege that paying with cash, check, and debit can actually reduce inflation. So that is a very important topic nowadays with inflation essentially going through the roof right now. Mm -hmm. And I can think off the top of my head one reason why this can help reduce inflation, but I want to I want you to break down that thought process and explain to the listeners and me how that is the case. That's a clickbaity title that you just said right there. That got people's attention because it really doesn't eliminate inflation. Inflation is is decided by a bunch of different factors. I mean, right now, the whole supply chain thing, there's nothing that I'm going to say here that's going to change that. There's going to be inflation. What I am going to say is when you're paying with cash, check, debit, or even Bitcoin, you're not inflating prices. Because when you're using credit cards, you're inflating prices. What that means is I go to the Target and I buy whatever $200 worth of stuff at Target. If I swipe with a credit card, there's a higher processing fee. I'm just going to call it a swipe fee. A higher processing fee that Target has to pay to process that transaction. I've heard, uh, I've heard one report was up to 5%, but that's very rare. But up to 4% is the, is the cost of, of processing that transaction. So if you think about it, let's just do round numbers, $100. 4% of $100 is 4 bucks. 4 bucks goes to the credit card company. Target gets the other 96 to pay for the items that I, I that I purchased from them. They pay wholesale, whatever. Plus, they got their employees, electricity, rent, uh, all the other things that go along with running a business. When I pay with cash, there's no processing fee. Yes, there's the labor of the cashier at the register, but guess what? That's already there when I'm paying with a credit card, too. When I'm paying with a check... All right, let's go past that. Nobody does that anymore. Uh, <laughs> when I'm paying with a debit card, the processing fee is less. When I'm using my PIN number, it's less. So that keeps more of the money in Target's pockets, meaning they don't have to compensate for the extra 2%, 3% that a credit card would charge above a debit card uh, transaction or up to 4% over a cash transaction, which means they don't have to uh, raise the prices on the shelf for me and everybody else in my neighborhood who shops there. It's going to keep the prices lower than if everybody is just using credit cards. It's a cost so of doing business. You definitely hit on the topic that I was going to bring up, which was the processing fee. And the only reason that I know is because recently I went to the dentist to get my braces tightened and I had to pay my, you know, dental fee. And there was like a 4% upcharge if you use credit card. Mm -hmm. And it's because I guess recently Visa and MasterCard were like, hey, we're going from like 2% to 3% or whatever that percentage is. So that's how I know that they've gone up and that's caused, although my service has, the price of my service has not gone up, the overall price that I am paying for that service has gone up due to the processing fees associated. So I don't know if you know the answer to this. I don't. So I'm going to ask you, Steve, I know when I go to the, when I go to the gas pump and I swipe a debit card, it asks me credit or debit. And if I hit debit, it does not work. 
But if I hit credit, it does. So do you know if the same processing fee will happen or if it'll be less if you're using a credit option on a debit card? Right. Well, then we got to it's not necessarily because it's a debit card that it gets processed like a debit card, because if you run it through the credit system, then it's processed like a credit card, at least the, the processing fees and all that stuff, because you also get. OK, so people like credit cards for the zero liability of it. If your card is stolen, somebody else uses it. You call up the credit card company. Hey, my card was stolen. Any charges on there, they replace or they, they, they you know, they credit you back. Guess what? Debit cards, your bank does the same thing. And it's I've done it four times. We've had debit cards throughout the past 15 years get compromised. Any of the charges were always reversed almost instantly. It's never cost us a penny. Uh, although I had a, a family member who had a credit card compromised, they called up the credit card company, said, "Hey, there's this charge on our on 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 our, my account, and I didn't do this. It's for some car repair maintenance membership thing." And they're like, "Oh, well, you got to call the company to deal with that." So even the credit card company wasn't standing behind their zero liability policy. So the zero liability policy thing, we can just put that to rest. It's the same for credit and debit. That's a mantra that should have been retired a decade ago. Where were we going with this? Uh, <laughs> I've lost track. We were talking about um, if the same processing fee applies to a, a debit card that's ran as credit. Right, right. So if you think about how most companies, um, when they set up their, uh, for an individual, maybe they're familiar with the Square account. I don't believe there's a debit option for that. I think it's just swipe, charge, flat fee uh, that, that comes, or percentage fee that comes out for each transaction. When a company is setting up their processing system with a company, they're not directly doing it with Visa, they're doing it with a company who works to process the stuff, then they might get the two options of debit and credit. So if you use your debit card like credit, it's going to go through the credit processing system. And if you put your pin in, then it goes through debit, which is almost like a direct line to your bank, because that's what it's going to do. It's going to check to make sure the funds are there if they have it set up that way. And that's the thing. The, the risk of a card not having the money to pay for whatever the purchase is, is, at, is the question here. With a debit card, it pretty much knows there's money in the account if they set up their processing to do it that way. And most companies that have, you know, I can't say most companies, I don't know most companies, but I would imagine most companies, if you're paying, you know, if you're charging, uh, buying $100 worth of stuff on a debit card, it's going to do that dial into the bank and figure it out. Whereas a credit card company, I mean, it's the money's going to come from the credit card company. It doesn't matter if you have money in your account or not, because the bank, the credit card company is loaning you the money until your statement comes in. So money's going to be there. So then they have to worry about, well, what about if the purchase was fraudulent who's going to stand behind it so there's a lot more risk on the credit card side even though in my mind it's the same now it should be the same but the, all that zero liability is kind of helping that buffer that that two to three percent extra over a debit card yeah well, does that make sense absolutely and when i think okay. about it it's quite simple you know that four percent surcharge that they are charging every single swipe that is going to cover those fraudulent charges. So let's just say one in every 25 swipes is fraudulent. Well, they cancel each other out essentially because they got paid more each swipe. Now, I highly doubt one in 25 swipes is a fraudulent swipe. 
And right. so that's they are obviously profiting on that. I think it all it, it really comes down to, especially with this whole fraudulent coverage with credit cards. Let's just to play devil's advocate. Let's just say, all right, you know what? You're right. You have fraudulent coverage with your credit card. Right. You every single swipe you do, you are paying more for that fraudulent coverage. Are you OK with that? If the answer is yes, then keep doing it. if you're OK. If your answer is no, look at a debit card, even though you're wrong either way look at the debit card for that fraudulent protection, whatever it is. So, yeah. Okay. The third topic. Third. I We're only in the third on. here. <laughs> the third. Keep going. Budgeting is more like driving a car than scrapbooking. Yeah. So you're going to have to break that down for the listeners because even I don't quite understand what you mean by that. So yeah. what does that analogy mean? Well, think about scrapbooking. You're taking pictures, photos, remnants of memories and putting them together in a book and looking at it all, right? A lot of people think a budget is that. They look back at their purchases. They look back at what they did. But a budget isn't like that. A budget is threefold. It's like driving a car. You have, when you're driving a car, you're looking three different ways. Not at the same time, of course, you only have two eyes. You're looking forward, you're looking in the rearview mirror backward, and you're looking side to side. So here I am, I've got my budget. I can look back and see all our spending in there. It's all tracked. You know, it's all imported from our bank automatically through YNAB, all this fun stuff. We can categorize it. We can deal, you know, dig into the numbers as much as we want, but we're looking back at it. So let's look at the rear view mirror. But I'm always looking forward. That's the key is looking forward. Okay, do we have enough money to pay for this car repair this month? If not, what do we do? How do we, how do we make sure we have that? So we're looking at our budget for the next month or the next couple of weeks to make sure we have the funds for groceries and the electric bill and our daughter's college expenses and blah, 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 blah. But then while we're existing in this space, while we're out there shopping, and now more than ever, we can whip out our phones, open up the app, and it tells me, hey, guess what? We got a hundred bucks for, uh, for clothing. I can buy the $70 shirt. I'm looking out the side mirror right at that moment before I make the purchase, do we have the money or not? Because it's in the clothing category, we have the money, boom. So that's why budgeting is not scrapbooking. Budgeting is looking forward to the future, looking back at what you've done and looking, you know, keeping an eye on what you're doing right now by looking side to side. You know, that's phenomenal because, so a scrapbook is purely memories. It is purely things that have already happened. If you look at your budget like that, then you're not seeing what's happening tomorrow, what's happening in a month, or what's happening in that moment right now. You're only focusing on the memories. Mm -hmm. I completely appreciate that point. But what I appreciate more in the driving analogy is that you still, when you're driving, you still pay attention to the past. You still pay attention to what's behind you. It's mm -hmm. just not as important as what's in front of you and what's what's in the future and what's in the now, what's side to side. So I like that analogy because you're covering every single basis. You're covering past, present, and future when it comes to budgeting, not just looking at the past. I like that. Yeah, well said. I like that. It dropped that pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Steve. That's that's all I got, man. That's mic drop. <laughs> all right, Steve. So let's talk about some of your goals. What are some goals that you hope to accomplish with your family, your finances, or even your businesses that you hope to accomplish within the next six months to a year? Six months to a year, there's really only one thing. Our daughter 
this would have been her last semester in college. She was going to graduate a semester early, but there's like one class she has to take next year. It's not even a credit class. It's just something to conclude the entire four years. So she's going to have to take this one class. But uh, the goal is to get her graduated. And she's, I, 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 we already know she's set, she's set up for success as she moves out, finds her own place, whatever. Um, of course, she'll have to look for a job. Of course, the bird's nest is always here to catch her in case something happens uh, until we move out of state. But that's the next goal, making, making sure that she's ready to go. Um, uh, we were talking earlier about how you paid for your brother's or part of your brother's car. Okay, so we were, we're and I'm going to admit it, we're privileged here. We were able to save up money for our daughter's college not try to figure it out as she's going through college. So we're saving up before she went to college so we could pay for her college. So she'll get out of school with no debt. Thank God, no debt. So then she'll be off on her own, no debt, paid for a car, life in front of her. She has to decide what she wants to do. She'll have the same struggles that we did when we were young. Um, getting her out of the house, that sounds horrible, but that's the goal. Not pushing her, just getting her to the point where she's out of the house on her own. That's every parent's dream. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with progression. That is the next progression. Now, yes, some people will say you need to progress forward at a certain speed, but you don't have to force it all the time. Now, I understand if there were problems, you know, you might want to give her a little push. But if there's right. no problems, if I think if they're doing the right thing and they're they're making you proud as a parent, I'm not a parent. I can't speak but you're more likely to help them out and give them privileges that they wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah. So in that college, they got your money. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Extra man. classes that don't mean anything. That's college <laughs> right there. Oh my yeah, God. I don't know what the cost is going to be, but if it's the full tuition, I'm just going to be going to them saying, what, yeah. what explain this to me. They'll get you. They'll say, Hey, if you're graduating <laughs> as a nurse, you got to take this art class. Cause Okay, Steve, what are some of the long-term goals you have for you and your family that you hope to accomplish within the next five to 10 years? And what does the finish line look like for you guys? That's two different things, but the same answer. Because in the next few years, we are looking to move to this, this remote little area out in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of, of Colorado, just south of Den, well, it's west of Pueblo. So it's south of Denver, west of Pueblo. It's a little town called Westcliff. It's paradise to us. And that's where we want to want to move. So the goal financially is to buy a house there. And, you know, we've been looking now for three years. We'll be going on four next year, being patient, still saving money when we can for, uh, you know, we'll have the sale of our house plus whatever down payment. I'll call it a down payment. It seems weird when you got, you know, a bigger as big a chunk of money from a sale of a house to but you know we're trying to get to as close as we can without having to take out a mortgage i just know that we're going to have a mortgage so that's that's the immediate you know two-year plan um but then that leads us into the final goal which is really that's our dream place is to live out in these mountain areas which is just gorgeous beautiful small community which has almost everything you need to live in there um without having your neighbors right next to you <laughs> i got nothing against neighbors just We've been living next to neighbors our entire lives. It'd be kind of cool to have a little bit of space. Plus, I mean, the mountains, the mountains. I'm telling you, the mountains. I got to send you a picture of the mountains. The mountains are beautiful. I mean, really, it, just something about it. It's not It's not like anywhere else we've seen in our lifetime. So uh, getting out there and then uh, I am still going to keep working. I love what I do. 
I don't want to quit. Um, so I'm just going to keep working and working and working until someday I, I guess it's decided for me that I can't work anymore <laughs> <laughs> until you get tired of it, essentially. And then you'll just find something else to work on. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, I could stop. I couldn't just stop and watch TV all day. That's just, Oh, so wasteful. What a wasteful life. It, it's like nobody in this personal finance. Cause you know, in the personal finance space, everybody wants to find be financially independent, retire mm -hmm. early, but nobody wants to retire. And so it's like, you have to find something to do. Otherwise, you're just going to be dying. Like, literally, you're just going to be wasting away doing absolutely nothing. You can only have so many margaritas on the beach before you find yourself buried in the sand. So, all right, Steve, we're going to transition into the final questions of the podcast. And, of course, these are the same questions that I ask every single guest that comes on. Are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it. Okay. Question number one. Everyone has their own definition of what it means to have financial peace. What is your definition? My definition is to have no worries about money. A short, sweet, and to the point. I like mm -hmm. it. Question number two. If there are listeners out there that want to start building wealth and they have no clue where to get started, what would you tell them? It's really to get to work. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with work, and there's nothing wrong with getting work that that it just doesn't call to you. You know, it's uh, we're gonna pick up McDonald's here because everybody th you know looks at that one as kind of like the easy job everybody can get into, and it doesn't pay a whole lot. And but you know, get to work and then build from there because we're talking about starting from zero. You're saying pretty much starting out. Yeah. Yep. Find something to do. My daughter. I started taking my daughter to a local roller rink uh, when she was four. And uh, when she turned 15, well, sometime before she turned 16, she applied to work there. I was like, oh, this would be a better first job than a lot of things I can think of. And then when she turned 16, they actually did hire her. And she worked there for many years, many years. Not a great job, but it was a fun job, different job. And it kept her going. And that's one of the reasons why she was able to pay cash for the car, because she was taking that that side hustle money, that, that part-time job and not just spending it, but also saving it. Yeah. I think a lot of times what people look for is this fantasy career to where they will never have a bad day. They will never be tired of going to work or they just will not have a customer who is going to get on their last nerves. And I'm, I keep trying to tell people, listen, you can find your dream career and still have bad days. And so I'm sure with your daughter going to this roller rink a lot, she really enjoyed it. And so mm -hmm. working there is like a dream. But that does not mean that she's going to have bad days. It does not mean someday she's going to be like, why am I even here? So I think. Oh, there were many of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were many of those. She come home and tell us about all the things that went wrong every single day. But she still went back because she wanted to. Exactly. I love my job. I love what I do, but I still have long days. I still have bad days. And I'm sure you love what you do, Steve. And sometimes you just have really long days and you just want to be home and not come back for at least a week. And so <laughs> we all have those. So those people who are looking for that perfect job and they think they found it and then they have a bad day and they realize, yeah, this isn't what I thought it was. Just realize what you're looking for is completely make believe and every job, every career is going to have its bad sides. Question, <laughs> question number three. 
If there's one thing you could advise everyone to avoid doing to build wealth, what would it be? We talked about it at length. Don't worry about your stupid credit score. Pay your debts and bills on time. You will have a good credit score or you will have the perfect credit score, which is nothing. Just pay your debts and bills on time and don't worry about credit. Don't worry about it. It's there for you if you want it. They're going to give you credit. Don't worry about it. Don't work towards getting a good credit score. It's one of those things where like, as long as you do the right thing, it's going to end up being perfectly fine. Now, if you do the wrong thing, it's going to reflect. Yes. But it should not be what you're trying to fix. You should be trying to fix your habits, which is paying your things on time, paying people back and maintaining, you know, uh, a pretty acceptable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Question number four. If there's someone out there that doesn't believe they can reach financial peace due to their age, their race, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera, what would you say to change their mind? I really try to think through this answer. And I, I don't know if I could come up with something that would convince anybody who's listening, maybe one or two people who would fit into the mold that I've set in my brain as to what this advice would, would uh, apply to. So it, it's really a hard answer to give you. But what would be the one thing to say? This whole money thing, see, I'm going to say this and a lot of people are going to go, huh, what? This whole money thing doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What you do in life is what matters. And as a Christian, how you live your life and help others to find and follow Jesus is the goal. The money thing is just the way, it's just one of those things that you, it's like putting on your clothes in the morning. Why? Well, one, it's appropriate, and two, if not, you're probably cold. So there's a couple of reasons why you put on the clothes, but the clothes isn't the thing. So the money thing doesn't matter as much as a lot of people think it does. It's just, it does become an issue when we don't manage it well, or we don't have the capability of, or not the capability, but if we don't have enough money to pay for the basic necessities, we have a problem and it does cause a lot of stress. And that's just the capitalistic society that we live in, James. So that, I, I think that's my answer. I don't think I said it very well, but hopefully some people can relate. No, I mean, what you just said, we talk about so much on the podcast. What people don't realize is money at the end of the day, it is a tool. It is a tool to, that can make life easier. It should not be the thing. Your life is not made out of money. Money just helps with life. And just like any other tool, if you use a hammer wrong, it's going to hurt you. It's going to make life more difficult. If you use money wrong, it is going to make your life more difficult. Yes, you can build a house without a hammer. It's going to be more difficult. So you have to look at it as a tool and not as the thing, just like you said, man. I'm going to give you an applause. Everybody, please applaud for James. That was excellent. Excellent, dude. No, nah, man. It's just these are things I learned. I'm I'm parroting somebody else. I don't know who, but somebody <laughs> else has probably said that to me. And Steve, this has been such a great interview, man. Thank you so much for coming on and not only sharing your story, but bringing a different perspective to the conversation when it comes around living with debt, without debt, and not focusing on the credit score, where can people find out more about you? Well, the home base is stevestewart.me. Uh, that's where you can find me. Um, but my career has pivoted since 2016 into being a podcast editor. Uh, 
I get to edit for my peers, people like you. Well, I don't edit for your show, but I'm saying you're like in my community of peers that I love to, to work with. So they can find me there. Social media, Steve Stewart, me is on Twitter. Uh, I have an Instagram account, but I don't use it very much. I need to, I need to fix that problem. But you can find me there as well. Absolutely. And of course, guys, I'm going to have all of this Twitter, his website. And if I can find his Instagram, I'll have that link down in the show notes below. By the way, I did get to meet Steve at FinCon this year. He gave a banging presentation, gave me so much good knowledge about ways to improve this podcast. So if you guys have seen some changes, seen some different things, <laughs> some of it is thanks to Steve. So Steve, I appreciate all the knowledge you dropped there at FinCon. And it was so great meeting you in person, man. Hey, you're welcome. Sorry, I got you working longer hours now. No, but <laughs> look, the longer hours makes for better production. And Yay. So, this has been awesome, Steve. I hope you have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks, James. Keep paying attention, not interest. Ah, I love it. Later, man. And guys, that was my interview with Steve Stewart himself. We covered so many great topics about getting started later in your financial journey because he didn't even really get serious about his 401k until age 33. Also, we talk about, you know, not being so obsessed with your credit score, right? Your credit score can be a tool, but it is not the end all be all and you can live without it. So it was great to get his takes on those things and to really break down the reason why people should not obsess with their credit score. Also, how he broke down why using uh, checks and using cash is better for the economy. I think that was a very interesting take, and I think I learned a lot from it. So I really hope you guys learned a lot from this interview. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm not going to waste too much time. If you guys want to get in contact with me, you know all my contact information is down in the show notes below. Without further ado, guys, I'm your host, James Bowman. And always remember, you're only as secure as your ability to perform. So spend your life accumulating assets that can perform for you. Later, guys.